Well, we are wrapping up our God Aloha teaching series today. This is part six of a, of a six-part series. And then next Sunday, we're going to be diving into a new teaching series. It's going to be kind of a summer teaching series. It's probably going to last all of June and July, where we're going to look at the big picture of the Bible. We're going to look at the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, and help us to understand how it's laid out and the big story of God and how it's all weaved together. So if you've never uh, looked into that or understood the books or why they're in the order they're in or why they're in there or what's contained in them, we're going to be spending the summer looking at the Bible from front to back. So that's, uh, that's our new teaching series. But today we're wrapping up God Aloha. Obviously tying into the, the, the idea that in Hawaiian culture, aloha is the spirit of generosity, the spirit of giving. It's the culture of sharing life together. And so we're asking ourselves, God, aloha, do we have that generosity flowing from us? Do we have that, that culture within our hearts of sharing lives together and, and giving And so you can go to our website or our podcast to catch up on any of the messages you've missed. Last week, we looked at tithes and offerings in a six-week series on generosity. We had to get at least one message in there about money. And we did last week. And what we looked at is that tithing is not generosity. Tithing is the first 10% of your money, and it's holy and set apart for God. So we don't give our tithe because we're generous. We give our tithe because we're in a covenant relationship with God. And that first 10% is just part of our covenant. Generosity begins after we tithe. Once we give that first 10% to God, then we listen to God. And if he asks us to give to missions, if he asks us to give uh, to a family in need, if he asks us to give to a, a different project or a different ministry, we do that out of obedience. Generosity begins after we tithe. Today, for our final part in our series, the title of the teaching is Bake Me a Cake. Bake Me a Cake. Now, we know that music and songs and poems, they, they get stuck in our head. And, and it's an amazing way to memorize things is when they're in song form or poetry form, right? And for me, I grew up in the 80s, and, and in the 80s, my absolute favorite band was Bon Jovi, all right? I could not get enough of Bon Jovi in the 80s, all right? It was, he was just awesome, the whole band. And now, 30 years later, if you put a Bon Jovi song on, I can start belting out every word of that song, even if I haven't heard it in 30 years, right? Because songs get inside of us, and then, you know, they they get in our head, and we just don't forget them. So when I say, bake me a cake, I'm almost certain that in 99% of the people here, immediately in the back of your head, all you could hear was, patty cake, patty cake, right? That's just, it's, it's immediate, So, yeah, that's right. Bake me a cake as fast as you can. So this is an old nursery rhyme. It was attributed to Mother Goose back in the 1700s, but the origins of it was actually from the 1690s. It was part of a play that was written in the 1690s. But it's a really cute nursery rhyme, and it's fun to do with the kids. And then, you know, you you pat hands, and, and, and you get the baby excited about cake. But if you really think about the words of the song... It's really pretty demanding, right? There's no please in there. There's no thank you. It's just, hey, baker man, bake me a cake as fast as you can. And mark a letter on it so I know it's mine, okay? That's, 
It's a very demanding song. And so today, we're going to take a look at a story in the Bible, but we're going to look at a concept of a very demanding God. And, and normally, we look at God in terms of his love. We look at God in terms of his grace. But today, we're going to look at God in terms of he can be demanding, and that's okay. And so in honor of Memorial Day, our topic is sacrificial generosity. We're, we're going to look at what it means to be generous in a sacrificial way. And our entire message today is going to come from one story in the Bible, and that is in 1 Kings 17. So if you got your Bibles, you can just go to 1 Kings 17 right now, and, and we're pretty much just going to stay there for the, for the whole teaching. What today's teaching is going to do is we're going to look at two key characters in this story. One of the characters is Elijah the prophet, and the other character, we're just going to call her the widow because the Bible never gives us her name. And what we're going to see in these characters is in Elijah, we're going to see his generosity in his sacrificial obedience. And in the widow, we're going to see her generosity in her sacrificial giving. And we want to look at what happens when sacrificial obedience meets sacrificial giving and what comes out of that. You guys with me? It's the intersection of sacrificial obedience and sacrificial giving. And so before we start reading 1 Kings 17, let's, let's set up the situation here so that we, we have an understanding of what's going on. At this time, the kingdom of Israel is split in half. After King Solomon, there was a civil war, and the kingdom split in half. And so the northern kingdom was still known as Israel, and they, they made their capital Samaria. The southern kingdom became known as Judah, and their capital was Jerusalem. And throughout the history of the kings of Israel, the southern kingdom had a mix of kings. Some of the kings fell away from God and worshipped idols and led the, the nation astray. Some of the kings were faithful to God, restored the true worship of God, and, and brought the nation back on track. The northern kingdom did not have a mix of kings. The northern kingdom never had a good king. Every single king throughout the whole history of the northern kingdom led the nation astray, led the nation away from God. At this time, at 1 Kings 17, that king is Ahab. He is the eighth king in the northern kingdom. And of all the bad kings that the northern kingdom had, Ahab was probably the worst. The biggest mistake that Ahab made is he married a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel was from Phoenicia. And the whole reason Ahab married her was for foreign relations. He wanted his kingdom to get along with the Phoenician kingdom. Why? Because they were all worried about the Syrians. The Syrians were rising up. Everybody in the area was scared, and so people were trying to form alliances so that they could fight against the Syrian kingdom. So Ahab marries this woman from, from uh, Phoenicia named Jezebel. In Phoenicia, they worshipped a god named Baal. And Baal, in Phoenician culture, was known as the storm god. That means that they believed that Baal was the one who brought rain. Baal was the one who brought lightning, right? He brought all of these storms. And, and so it's no surprise in the Bible that when God comes against Baal, what are some of the things that he used? Well, drought to prove that Baal couldn't bring rain. And then how about fire from heaven to prove that God could bring fire to heaven and Baal couldn't, 
right? That's the story of Mount Carmel, if you've ever read that story in the Bible. So Jezebel grew up worshiping the storm god Baal. And so when Jezebel marries Ahab and moves to Israel, she decides that she wants the worship of Baal to replace the worship of the one true God. And she's willing to do whatever it takes to make that happen. So she's willing to lie, deceive, and manipulate. And then when that's not working fast enough, she was willing to kill whoever she needed to kill. And Jezebel was known for murdering the prophets of God, murdering anybody who stayed faithful to God and worshiped and, and refused to worship Baal. In fact, by this point in the story, there's only about 7,000 people left in all of Israel who still worship the one true God. Everybody else out of fear or not wanting to get murdered had turned to worshiping Baal. And so this is the condition, right? We've got Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab, who cared more about his personal gain and his personal reputation than doing the right thing, and Jezebel, who was known for deceit and manipulation and murder. And these were the people who were leading the northern kingdom of Israel at the time that Elisha, Elijah comes on the scene. So with that, let's start in 1 Kings 17. Let's just read verse 1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So Elijah just bursts onto the scene here in 17.1. Prior to this, we'd never heard of him before. So we don't know anything about his background, anything about his upbringing, anything about that. Just all of a sudden, there's this prophet Elijah. So let's talk about what we do know about this prophet Elijah. First off, the name Elijah means Yahweh is my God. So his parents knew when he was born to give him a powerful name. They knew prophetically that Elijah was going to grow up and his name was going to mean something. Yahweh being the personal name of the one true God of Israel. Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. Here's the thing about Elijah. He was a man of miracles and action, not words. Elijah was probably one of the most important prophets in all of the Old Testament, yet we don't have a book of Elijah in the Bible. We've got lots of other prophets. We've got some 22 other prophets who actually wrote books that ended up in the Bible. Elijah didn't. Why is that? Because he was more a man of actions than a man of words. So he prophesied a little bit. He would get up and declare a little bit. But mostly for Elijah, his ministry was all about the miracles that followed him everywhere that he went. And he proved the word of God, and he proved his right to stand up and judge the nation of Israel because of the miraculous things that he did. So we don't have a book of Elijah because he was a man of action, not a man of words. Elijah preserved Judaism during one of the darkest times in the history of Israel. Remember, by this point, there was only 7,000 people left in Israel that were still worshiping God. And if Elijah hadn't shown up when he did and done what he did, man, those 7,000 might have gotten wiped out too. And Judaism might have ceased to exist at that point. And so Elijah preserved Judaism. And there's a saying that says that darkness brings forth greatness. 
Well, I tell you what, darkness at this point in the history of Israel brought forth greatness in the form of Elijah. And I believe that today the same thing is true. Darkness will draw out greatness. You know, we live in some concerning times. And I know a lot of people want to complain, man, this is the worst time in the history of America. The, the, the kingdom is falling apart. This is the political outrage and the political divisiveness. And we've got North Korea and Iran and we've got all of these things and, and everything's just really, really bad. Well, listen, if you're saying that, just because you're standing around and wringing your hands and you're just afraid and you're just worried about the country falling apart around you, can we just stop it? Can we just stop it? But if you're looking at it and you're saying, you know what, these are dark times. But darkness calls out greatness. And if I'm looking at these difficult times and the divisiveness and the outrage and the fear, and, and I believe that it's calling greatness out of me, then that's a whole different story. So let's stop wringing our hands and being afraid, and let's start looking for the greatness that's being called out of us in such a time as this. Where's the Elijah inside of us? Where's that passion to step forward and do something great because we're living in some dark, scary times? Let's see that greatness rise up. It rose up out of Elijah during this season. How about this about Elijah? He's one of only two human beings who ever lived who did not die. The first was Enoch, who was way back at the beginning of the book of Genesis. All we know about Enoch is he was here, and then he wasn't. That's it. That's all the Bible tells us. Elijah, the Bible gives us a better picture. There was actually some chariots of fire that showed up from heaven, picked him up, and just carried him right off to eternity, and he didn't have to die. Think about that. Even Jesus died, and he was God in the flesh, but Elijah didn't die. He went straight to eternity. So Elijah is one of only two people in the history of mankind who didn't die. And the final thing, and I think the most important thing is this. He was a man just like us. In James 5.17, James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a man just like us. Why is that so important? Because we tend to look at these characters of the Old Testament and we make legends out of them. Man, these were such mighty men of God. They do things that no human being could do. There's just something different about them. No, there was nothing different about him. He was just like us. Just in a dark time, when the call of God came upon his life, he rose up and did exactly what God asked him to do. And because of that, miraculous ministry followed him. And he's just like us. Which means if we were to do the same thing, miracles would follow us too. So I think it's important when we read about Elijah that we don't just think, well, Elijah was one of those supermen from the Old Testament. No, he's just like us. So Elijah just shows up on the scene. Elijah the Tishbite of the settlers of Gilead, which means he grew up east of the Jordan River in Gilead, which means maybe he was a part of the two and a half tribes that settled on that side of the river. If you guys know your history from the book of Joshua. But he shows up out of the blue, and the first we hear of him, he is confronting King Ahab, right? Ahab and Jezebel, who kill all of the prophets, and yet Elijah is willing to stand in front of them and declare, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He is calling out the worshipers of Baal who believe that Baal brings the rain in, in season. 
And Elijah says, you know what? No rain is going to come because my God is alive and your God is dead. And I'm going to prove that when it doesn't rain. Now, they had a season in Israel when it didn't rain anyway. And if he had made this proclamation in the middle of that season, everybody would be like, so what? But then the rainy season came and it didn't rain. And then the next year, the rainy season came and it still didn't rain. It didn't rain for three and a half years until Elijah prophesied again and prayed for the rain to come back. He takes on the God of Baal. And then in verse 2, moving on, it says this, The word of the Lord came to him saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. So can we talk about sacrificial obedience? God calls Elijah and says, I want you to go to the king and queen who kill the prophets, and I want you to stand in front of them and declare a drought over the entire kingdom of Israel. And he had to be obedient to that. Why was it sacrificial obedience? Well, think about it. First of all, Elijah suffers from the drought along with everyone else. Everyone else who doesn't have anything to drink, when people are beginning to starve because the crops won't grow, because there's no food, Elijah suffers along with everybody else. Also, he has now become public enemy number one in Ahab's kingdom. Right? He has put himself out there sacrificially in order to do God's will. So Ahab and Jezebel want to kill him. But not only that, but probably most everybody else in Israel who's thirsty and starving probably wants to kill him too. Even though it's Ahab's fault that judgment from God has come on Israel. You think Ahab's taking responsibility? No, Ahab's telling the people, you know what, it's not raining because Elijah won't let it rain. And he puts all the blame on Elijah. So he is now public enemy number one. Everybody hates him. Everybody's mad at him. Everybody thinks it's his fault there's no water and no food. And his obedience to God brought great turmoil in his life emotional distress it threatened his physical well-being his mental health his emotional well-being it took a great personal toll on elijah we find throughout the story of elijah that he suffered from depression that he was suicidal he just wanted to die why because his sacrificial obedience took such a toll on him you know, and we, we live in a culture where when we talk about God, we only want to talk about the good things that God does for us. But we don't want to look at the reality that following God can be painful and it can take a toll on us, right? We, we like bumper stickers. We like sayings about God that sound really good in one sentence and we can stick them on our car or nowadays we tweet them, right? Oh, that's, a, that's good. I'm going to tweet that. That's a really good saying about God when it's not actually true. The big one that got popular in the 90s was the bumper sticker that said, the safest place to be is in the middle of God's will. Right? What a crock. 
the safest place to be. Elijah was right in the middle of God's will, and everybody in the kingdom wanted to kill him. And it was so hard on him, he got depressed and wanted to kill himself. But he was right in the middle of God's will, right? Talk about the heroes of the faith who were sawn in half, alive, cut in half. Not by a magician when he put the two boxes back together. They were literally sawn in half. What about the heroes of the faith who were being fed to lions? Sacrificial obedience. When we follow God, it's going to take a toll on us. And it's going to hurt sometimes. And you know what? Some people have died doing it. And that's not just ancient history. That's today. Do you know all over the world today, on average, every single day of the year, between two and 300 Christians are murdered for being in the middle of the will of God. That is sacrificial obedience. But here's the thing about God. In the midst of his sacrificial obedience, God looks out for Elijah. He protects him and provides for him. First, he sends him out of Israel to go hide somewhere where Ahab can't find him. He says, I want you to go east of the Jordan River. I want you to go to this brook Cherith. To this day, nobody knows where the brook Cherith was back then, but we just know it was east. Sends him out of Israel to go somewhere to hide where Ahab can't find him so that he won't get killed. Why? Because God still had some stuff left for him to do. And you say, well, pastor, what about the people that are sacrificially obedient and they do get killed? Well, that just meant that God's purpose for their life here on earth was done and that God is going to get more glory in their death than he is in their life. And maybe, just maybe, their suffering is over and now they have an eternity in heaven to look forward to. I was listening to a teaching by Craig Groeschel and I just loved what he said. He said, you know what? God protects us until he doesn't. God heals us until he doesn't. Sooner or later, we're all going to die. And so he'll protect us for a season, and then he's still going to let us die. He'll heal us for a season, but sooner or later, we're still going to die. But in the season that he protects us, in the season that he keeps us alive, it's because he still has a purpose for us, and it's because we're still going to bring glory to God in our life. And then when it's time for us to die, we're going to bring glory to God in our death. At this time, he protects Elijah. And then not only does he protect him, but he provides for him. He sends him to a body of water that hasn't dried up yet. He knew that there was still water in the brook Cherith. And so he sends him there to get water to drink. And then he supernaturally provides him food by having ravens carry food to him. Every morning and every night, the birds would come in and just drop meat in his lap. And he would just have scraps of meat and he would eat every single day. God provided for him in the midst of his sacrificial obedience. And as God has called us to sacrificial obedience, we have to trust that he will protect us and provide for us in our obedience as well. Amen? But then something happens. The water in that brook dries up too. So God keeps moving him along. We're picking it up in verse 7 now. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So now we introduce to the story the widow. So let's look at what we know about the widow. It's not a whole lot. 
because we'd never even know her name. We never hear about her before this story. We never hear about her after this story. But we know about her in the middle of this story. And we know that she lives in a town or a village called Zarephath, which is near Tyre and Sidon, which is right in the middle of the kingdom of Phoenicia, the hometown of Jezebel. So God now sends Elijah to the hometown of Jezebel. His next step is to go right into the heart of Baal country. And right in the heart of Baal country, God has found a widow who has a personal relationship with him. Even though she lives in a culture that exclusively worships Baal, and she's been raised in this culture, and that's all she's ever known in this culture, is right in the heart of a Baal-worshiping nation, we find a widow who has a personal relationship with the one true God. And God cares more about the heart than about a person's ethnicity or where they live. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4 said this. He said, I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land and yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Right? Jesus himself was saying there was widows all over the place in Israel. They were Jewish by birthright. They were the people of God. Yet God sends Elijah to the middle of Baal-worshipping country to find one widow who had a heart for God. God cares more about our hearts than about ethnicity or where we live or even who our parents are. Right? Our parents don't bring us into the kingdom of God. Our heart brings us into the kingdom of God. And we know this, that this widow hears the voice of God. Because in verse 9, God says, I have already commanded a widow there to provide for you. So God has already spoken to this widow in advance and said, A man of God is going to come to you, and when he comes to you, I want you to provide for him. So then in verse 10, this is where it gets a little more demanding. So he, Elijah, arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and he said, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. So this woman has enough flour and oil left to bake one last bread cake. And she's out gathering a couple of sticks. All the moms out there, you can imagine what's going on in her heart and her emotions as she is out gathering a few sticks knowing that she's just going to go light the fire one last time so they can eat, and then she and her son can starve to death together. That's all she has left. She has no hope. She has no plan. She has nowhere else to turn. And so in verse 13, Elijah makes one of the most ridiculous requests anybody could ever make. Then Elijah said to her, do not fear, go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. Hence the title of our sermon today, bake me a cake. 
This woman just told him she only has enough left to bake one last cake so that she and her son can die. And his response to it is, hey, how about you bake me that cake first? Right? You guys are going to die anyway. How about I eat the cake? Right? That's how ridiculous it sounds. Bake me a cake. But he says this. And afterwards, you may make one for yourself and for your son. See, Elijah's math doesn't add up here. She told him she only had enough left for one. And he's already talking about two cakes. He says, bake me a cake first. And you'll have enough afterwards to bake a second cake. And then verse 14. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. What we see here is we see sacrificial obedience coming into an intersection with sacrificial giving. Elijah, a man who was sacrificially obedient to the point now that he's wandering in a foreign nation, away from home, about to starve to death, public enemy number one, and God makes an even greater demand of him. He says, I want you to ask a starving widow to bake you a cake. She's got nothing left, but I want you to ask for it. And so in his sacrificial obedience, he asks for it. And then we have this widow who has nothing left, no hope, nowhere to turn. All she can do is trust in the word of a man who says he represents the one true God. And in her sacrificial giving, she uses the last of what she has left and bakes him a cake. Sacrificial obedience meets sacrificial giving. And at that intersection, what do we find? Miraculous provision. Miraculous provision. Can you imagine what it was like for this widow? She pours out the flour, puts the bowl down, pours out the oil, puts the bowl down, bakes the cake, goes and gives it to Elijah. And then she walks back into her kitchen. And there in the two bowls on the counter, the same amount of flour and the same amount of oil are still in the bowl. But she had to have the faith to give it all away the first time so that the miracle could occur. And you see, we have to have the faith to give it all away the first time, to do what God asks us to do, even if it sounds demanding, even if it sounds ridiculous, even if it sounds like too much, to give it all away. Then the story gets even crazier. Because now God is supernaturally providing for this widow and her son and Elijah. They're all staying here in this house. They're all eating when nobody else has any food. And then her little boy gets sick and dies. Just immediately, some sort of virus, something strikes him, and he dies. And now the woman looks at Elijah and says, what the heck? Why would God be supernaturally giving us some food if he was just going to let my son die? 
So why would God miraculously provide food just to let the little boy die? Why didn't God just stop the sickness from happening in the first place? Well, my answer to that is this. Because if God just does it all himself, then nobody learns anything. Nobody learns anything. But you see, in this, we see in 1 Kings 17, Elijah takes the little boy, carries him upstairs, lays him on the bed, begins to cry out to God, lays his body on top of the little boy's body, and just cries out to God until this little boy comes back to life. And then Elijah carries him back downstairs to his mom and says, here is your boy, he is alive. And the woman says, surely you are a man of God. Everybody in this story learned something because God allowed the trouble to come first before he brought the miracle. And we just wish that God would just bring the miracle so we never have the trouble. But if we never have the trouble, we never learn anything. He had something for Elijah to learn. Something about God's plan and how God wanted to use him. He had something for the widow to learn about trusting even deeper in God and believing that Elijah was the man of God. He needed to build Elijah's credibility because Elijah was about to go back to Israel and fight an even bigger fight. And he needed Elijah's faith to be bigger. He needed his credibility to be established. God needed to teach all of them something. And if he had just brought the miracle before the trouble, they wouldn't have learned. And in our lives, if God brings the miracle before the trouble, we don't learn anything. And then we need to understand that God has a plan. God has a plan. And that plan doesn't make sense all the time, but it's there. And he had a plan in this situation. How do we know he had a plan? Maybe God knew that that virus was coming. And that little boy was going to die from that virus. And because God knew that was going to happen, God enacted this whole elaborate plan to drive Elijah out of Israel, to get him east of the Jordan River, to have the brook dry up, to send him to the heart of Baal-worshipping nation, just to be at this widow's house just in time so that the man of God who brought miracles with him everywhere that he goes would be in just the right place so that when this little boy dies, a miracle could happen. God has a plan. We've got to trust that. We will not be sacrificial in our obedience or our giving if we can't trust that God has a plan. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back today. And I just want to encourage you in this. Four truths about sacrificial generosity. First truth is this. Sacrificial generosity requires us to live for God even in the most ungodly environments and circumstances. We've got two characters in this story who both lived in places where they had abandoned God, worshipped idols, did things however they wanted. And yet these two rose up in this story because they were willing to live for God even in the most ungodly environments. You might say, well, pastor, you don't know what my house is like. Pastor, you don't know what my neighborhood is like. Pastor, you don't know what the culture is like and what I have to deal with, with with my family and friends. Well, I probably don't because I haven't lived in your home and I haven't lived in your neighborhood. But I do know this, that God has you in that home and he has you in that neighborhood 
because he knows that your decision to live for him in that environment is the beginning of sacrificial generosity. And that sacrificial generosity will lead to the miraculous through your life. But it begins with us being willing to live for God even in the hardest of circumstances. Number two, this is the hard one. You guys ready for this? God can ask for anything he wants. God can ask for anything he wants. Nothing is too demanding. Nothing is off limits. Right? If you ever use the word never, whoo, I think that just stokes God's sense of humor. Right? If you ever say, God, I'll never go to Africa. God, I'll never do youth ministry. God, I'll never work in the prison. God, I'll never do this. Who you start saying that and telling God something off limits, you'll start finding that's exactly what God asks of you. God can ask for anything he wants. Last week we learned about the 10% and that the first 10% belongs to God and it's holy, right? But that's just the part of our covenant relationship. Let's be honest, 100% of it belongs to God. It's all his, and he can ask for whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and it's not too demanding because it's all his. He made you in the first place. He made everything in the first place. He paid the price to win you back, and it's all his, and he can ask for whatever he wants, even if it's your life. We don't like that. Listen, I don't want to die. None of us wants to die. None of us is excited at the thought that we might give our lives for the kingdom of God. But if that's what he asks of us, he has the right to ask it. Because God can ask for anything that he wants. I remember about nine years ago, man, we were flat broke. We had nothing, couldn't pay the bills, couldn't hardly feed the kids. And then my wife comes to me and I learned some valuable lessons early in my marriage that my wife's gift of discernment is way stronger than mine. And so when she discerns something, I listen. And I had to learn that early on because I didn't listen, right? That's how we learn. We are flat broke, and my wife comes to me and says, God told me we need to give $300 to somebody, and we need to give it anonymously. But she says to me, I'm not going to tell you who, because I want to know for sure that it's from God. So I believe that God is going to tell you the same person he told me. And so I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I can't pay the bills. $300, man, we could pay the electric bill. We could keep the lights on for another month. We're not making it. And I got to come up with $300. Not only that, I got to come up with it in cash, right? I mean, you can have a credit card. You can survive on a credit card because that's not real money. But I got to come up with $300 in cash and then give it away when I am flat broke? But because I trust my wife's gift, I went and I prayed about it. A week later, I come back to her and I said, all right, baby, this is who God said. And she said, yep, that's confirmation. And I was like, dang it. Okay, so, um, so we took the $300, we put it in an envelope. We had to figure out how to give it to them anonymously, so we went by their house late one night, and we stuck it in their mailbox, which I know it's like a federal offense to put stuff in a mailbox, all right, so hopefully the feds don't listen to this podcast, but 
God can ask for whatever he wants. And we did it. And listen, I would love to say to you that like a week later, a huge box of cash showed up in our mailbox, but it didn't. God's provision for us wasn't in a huge miracle. God's provision for us was just steady over and over again. We couldn't pay the rent and some money showed up. We couldn't feed our kids and groceries showed up on our front doorstep. They were about to turn the lights off and a little bit of money came. God's provision for us was slow and steady, but in the midst of that, we learned a lesson that God can ask for whatever he wants. Nothing is off limits. Number three, God's plan is good, but it's not comfortable. God is more concerned with the kingdom. He's more concerned with him being glorified in the earth so that more people could come to salvation. He's more concerned with that than he is with your comfort. And so we have to face the reality that what if for somebody else to get saved, I have to experience pain? Am I willing to experience pain so somebody else could get saved? What if somebody else is going to experience a miracle, but I have to sacrifice for that miracle to happen? Am I willing to sacrifice and be uncomfortable? Am I willing for the good of the kingdom and for the good of somebody else coming into the kingdom, am I willing to hurt? Am I willing to struggle? Am I willing to sacrifice? God's plan is good. It just doesn't always look good to us. Are we willing to pay the price? And then finally, miracles happen at the intersection of sacrificial obedience and sacrificial giving. What is God calling you to do that seems ridiculous? It can't be more ridiculous than asking a starving woman to bake you a cake. What is God asking you to do that you've fought against it? You've run from it. You said, no, that's too much. That's off limits. You can ask for some stuff, God, but you can't ask for that. What has he asked you to do? And what has he asked you to give? Is it your time? Has he asked you to give sacrificially of your time? Say, God, I don't have time for that. And God says, I know you don't have time for it, but I'm asking you to give it anyway. Is he asking you to give sacrificially in your finances? Is he asking you to give sacrificially in your love? Right, God, I don't want to love that person. You could ask me to love anybody, but not that person. I don't want to love them. They're off limits. And that's exactly the person God is asking you to love. Will you give love sacrificially? Will you give praise sacrificially when God asks you to rise up and praise him and you don't feel like it and life's not good right now and you're struggling and you say, I don't want to praise you, God. And God says, praise me right now and see the miracle that will come if you will praise me right now. What is he asking of you? Will you stand with me today?